Well, good morning, folks. Thank you for being here as we continue to <clears throat> study the tabernacle in the wilderness and all that is associated with it. I remember there are three things that come together and cohere comprehensively in the revelation of God's work in Christ. These three Old Testament types come together, cohere, and give us, a, give us a comprehensive presentation picture of the character, the person of the Messiah, the work of the Messiah, and of course the result of that work. That is the tabernacle in the wilderness, which one day, remember, becomes the temple under Solomon. The tabernacle, the priesthood, and then the festivals. So those three <clears throat> need to be considered as one revelation bits and pieces if you would hate to say it that way but pieces of one revelation it's not just three things that are going on it is it is one comprehensive revelation picture that God is giving to the Israelites to say this is the reason the method and the person through whom I will bring about my redemption of my people and so in the Old Testament, I will dwell with you this way. And in the New Testament, it will be fulfilled, and I will dwell with you in Christ. You remember that verse we read and have quoted a couple of times in here, John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, that glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Know that verse. Memorize that verse. Understand that verse. <clears throat> because as I've said before, in that verse, the Holy Spirit has collected. In that verse, the Holy Spirit has collected. In that verse, the Holy Spirit has collected all of the redemptive revelation that He gives to us in the Old Testament. God has collected it all and fulfilled it in that verse. That is a big verse, isn't it, James? It is a verse, if you would, if you want a verse that summarizes the Old Testament. There are several of them. This is one that I would give to you as a summary. What does the Old Testament mean? John 1.14. It's all coming down to John 1.14, or it's all coming down to Colossians 2.17. There are these verses which are monumental gathering verses. So last week, you remember, we were talking about the tabernacle and the coverings. And this morning, we continue with the coverings. And remember, last week, we talked about the first covering, the one that is seen, or it goes immediately on top of the uh, tabernacle, is seen only by the high priest. Which one is that? The linen. The linen, remember? And of the three colors, remember the three colors? Blue, purple, and scarlet or red intertwine linen with the figures of <laughs> if you think cherubim chickens, chickens yeah. Anna Chatelaine thought this meant chickens yep, yep you see what you get when you go to Anna's class you know <laughs> I didn't say you were an old hen I did not say that and so <laughs> listen she's one of my favorite people 
She and I joust all the time. I usually lose, but in public, at least I can stand the ground. The cherubim. And so we talked about the linen, the righteousness of Christ. We talked about, what did we talk about after the linen? The what? The goat's hair. What does the goat signify? Remember in Leviticus 16 as an example. Or Genesis 22 as an example. There are examples of these. The goat was a symbol of sin. It stood for that which took the sin upon itself. The sin was placed on that. And so you see, you begin to have the righteousness of Christ. Then the, secondly, the sin bearer who Christ is. This morning we talk about, and you shall make for the tent a covering of tan ram skins. These ram skins are dyed scarlet. The ram skins represented the shedding of the blood of an innocent substitute that takes away the guilty. That takes the place of the guilty, sorry. Remember in John 1, 29, what does John say? He sees Jesus walking, and what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is the sin of the world? Rebellion against God. He doesn't say sins because there is a sin that rejects Jesus Christ. And as a result of that one sin, all other sins are the fruit of that one sin who takes away the sin of the world. And so the ram skin, which is dyed scarlet or red, is a picture now of the shedding of the blood, the necessity that the Lord says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. You see, it's significant that you know these things. I sat the other day with a young fellow at the coffee house. He and I were discussing something of, of a business thing that I'm uh, involved with. Uh, and he said, oh, Peter, did you know that uh, such and such a friend of his was baptized the other day? Uh, you know, he's a three-month baby was baptized. I said, really? What church was that? Because, you know, in the Catholic church, children are christened at what age? What about what age? Well, as infants, usually eight or nine days old or whatever, that follows, you see, the Jewish system of circumcision. It's the same thing. And so I said, three months. I said, what church? He said, it was a Baptist church. Okay, fine. It's covenantal baptism. We're not going to quibble to talk about that. That's an acceptable form if you understand what you're doing. What we do is acceptable if you understand. I think we can abide both of them. And then I began to, he opened the door. He opened it just a crack. <clears throat> But let me, let, me, let me recommend to you and, and, and encourage you. When any person opens the door, even puts their hand on the handle and moves it a molecule, even a molecule, put your foot through the door and come in. But in kindness and gentleness. You see, when I say that, people think, oh. no, I don't mean that. I mean spiritually, lovingly aggressive. So, Bob, we started chatting. And we started chatting about why his religious faith is set, and I quoted it from Jesus, you nullify the word of God by the traditions of men. And so we talked about all these things, that what his faith cannot do, because the Bible and the God of glory says it does not happen this way. And when he left, I said, you know, Greg, 
you have to begin to seriously think about this more than anything else. You need to make a decision in this area. Now, he and I will be getting back together because we have to meet on occasionally. But all of this that we're studying <clears throat> and these verses that we throw out here and yonder and give to you as references, this is not just something to show you, look at what the Word of God says, or to say, oh, Peter Davidson knows something. That is not at all what's happening here. This is hopefully the work of the Holy Spirit, giving you ammunition, giving you presentation, documentation, and defense of the faith, so that as you speak, you will not speak in a way that just carries your opinions and your you know, cultural understandings and whatever, but that you will speak taking the Word of God and not only saying, this is what the Word of God says, and then quote it. You know, the Word of God says in John 1, 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And by doing that, Steve, what is happening? We get a, get a Hebrews 4, 15, for the Word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart of man. Amen? So do you want to be a warrior in Christ who comes against everything the culture has and comes against it effectively? Not that those folks will be saved, but that God will be honored in it all. Amen? So let's be a people of the Word, knowing it, studying it, memorizing it. So we throw out, if you would, I'm not using a term, helter-skelter. We give you these, these uh, re uh, words and these uh, references, hopefully for the purpose of use. Ah, I need to remember that. I need to remember that. We need to put this together. Remember Genesis 22, 23, the ram that is caught in the thicket. Remember Genesis 22? Abraham is minding his own business one day, Linda. And the Lord says, Abraham, here I am. You notice God, he never does say, look, I don't have time right now. I'm watching something or I'm going to a ball game or I have a job to do or I have. Did you, did you notice that? You notice these men of God who move the world in the name of Jesus Christ don't say to God, I don't have time. And one or two that do, the Lord deals with that. Abraham, here I am. Abraham, take your son. The first title, your only son, the son whom you love, Isaac. Four times, four descriptors of his son. And take him to the land of Moriah that I will show you. And there I want you to sacrifice him to me. The land of Moriah, three days walk. And Abraham knows that this 20-some-odd-year-old boy, he's probably about in his 20s now, not a 12-year-old boy as we see, this boy who carries on his back the wood, this boy who carries on his back the tree, this boy who carries on his back the very implement upon which he will be sacrificed, Isaac, see the Word of God in a deeper way. Can you imagine what it was for the Father 
every step of his way toward Moriah for three days. What do you think this man was thinking? How do you think he felt? You see, we don't get into the passages. We need to get into the passages. So they get there. And you remember the story that Abraham lays his son, you know, they put, make the altar, lays his son on the altar and binds him to the altar. Jesus was bound to the altar by what? The nails. He was bound to the altar just as Isaac was bound to the altar. And Abram takes the sacrificial knife to slay his son. And remember, the knife of this world, if you would, came against the Lord Jesus shedding his blood. Remember that? And as Abraham was about to plunge it into the chest of his, uh, his son, the Lord says, wait! There's a ram in the thicket. Now you can imagine Abraham said, Abraham said whew, whew, man, that's a close shave, and I'm not used to close shaves. And the ram is sacrificed. Now, what is the significance of, I know this goes beyond the notes a little bit, but I hope you don't care about that if I take my time and sometimes don't finish every lesson. But I want us to get this well. What is the significance, and for those of you who absolutely know, be quiet. Why? Because I want people to think about it. And maybe all of you know, and I hope everybody is quiet. What is the significance of Moriah? What's Moriah? Does anybody really know? The significance of Moriah, what? It's the place of the temple. The place generally where Jesus would have been crucified hundreds of years later. Is this Old Testament something else? Or is this just a set of writings of an old bunch of people put together this stuff, these stories, these make-believes, and are put together just some kind of way haphazardly? Or is this the intricate work of God giving us revelation of another son, your only son, the son whom you love, my beloved son, my agapitos, Isaac, but this son's name is Yeshua, Jesus. The, so the ram skin, so what do we have? The righteousness of Christ is revealed in the first covering. <clears throat> the sin offering is revealed in the second covering, remember, the goat. And then the shedding of blood is revealed in the third covering. And then what about the last one? The last one is a, really, it's a sea cow, although they're none anymore, so they call it por porpoise, badger. It's really a sea cow, which was an animal that existed in those days out there, a sea cow. Well, let me, by the way, I have this scripture for you. What does the ram again say about Christ? It symbolizes the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross for us. 1 Peter 2.21, Christ also suffered for you. 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, you see, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might be, the righteousness of God. 
And when it says God made him to be no, of sin, it doesn't mean that Jesus became personally polluted with our sin, but judicially God declared Jesus because Jesus accepted that declaration upon himself. God declared Jesus as judicially sinful so we could be declared judicially not guilty. He was declared judicially guilty and condemned and destroyed on the cross so that we, as a result of his death, could be declared by the same great judge as judicially not guilty. Why? Because we were in Christ, Galatians 2, 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. In the life that I now live, Arrow, I live by, the, by faith in the Son of God who loves me and who gave himself for me. 1 Timothy 2.6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, Romans 5.8. While we were sinners, Christ died for all, us. Isaiah 53.6, remember that great servant song, the suffering servant. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what that ramskin is saying. Now, the Jews don't get this, and probably not even Moses understands this. This is not what they understand. All they know is we have to have these four coverings, and it meant something to God. That's what they knew. It meant something to God. On the cross, became, Jesus became our divine substitute, paying the price for our sin and dying on our behalf. And then finally, and a covering of goat skin on top. Goat's hair, then goat skin. Now, I'm not quite sure the distinction here, but I'll leave it as that. The badger, or the sea, I'm sorry, the sea cow. The sea cow skin, this skin formed the outer layer that was visible to the eye, obscuring the other three. It was kind of a protective covering, if you would. The badger skin, or the cow skin, was a dull bluish color, having no natural attraction or beauty. In other words, it really made the tabernacle look kind of like a, ugh. It didn't have anything about the tabernacle. Wow, look at this. Man, I need to go into that building. Look at that building, man. That doesn't have any class. It's not pretty. This sea cow covering made that building look very probably unattractive to some. And at best, having no natural attraction to anyone. Well, what does this say? What does Isaiah 53, 2 and 3 say? What does Isaiah 53, 2 and 3 say about this one who will suffer? He had no form or what? Comeliness or attraction that we should desire him in other words jesus wasn't what you see in hollywood you know this this man this good-looking guy walking around or whatever and you know man look at this guy man this dude no he was just a common looking everyday jew and there were probably many guys who were a lot better looking that he than he was if he came in here there's not a thing about him that we would say hey this is somebody other than the spirit that he was, you know, what do you call it, uh, emanating from him, the spirit of God. People were drawn to him, not because of anything of the natural, but everything of the supernatural. That's why people were drawn to him. You see, this was the outer covering that was seen by the people. It obscured the other three and the beauty of the interior. It obscured the beauty of his intrinsic righteousness, intrinsic, that which was his by nature. Remember, the Son of God inhabits this body, the intrinsic righteousness of the Son of God who dwells in the humanity of Jesus. As a man, Jesus was ordinary and unattractive and unimpressive. 
You know, we may not want to hear that, right? I mean, come on, let's, let's, let's be true, and I've done this. How many of us have a picture of Jesus really as somebody in the natural? Come on, am I the only one who's ever done that? About three of you have, thank you. Man, Jesus, when he walks down the street, Donnie, everybody notices, no, not at all, unless they're drawn by the Holy Spirit or unless they're repelled by the Holy Spirit. Drawn by and what? Repelled by. God will do one of either. Amen? God repels. Hopefully it's not my personality that repels, which for some of us is a challenge. <laughs> Hopefully it's the Holy Spirit that's either drawing or repelling. Jesus' natural appearance drew no one to him, obscuring the inner beauty of his deity. Why? God has purposefully kept the beauty of his son from the world, the natural world so that only those who are given a new heart by the Spirit may be able to see the King in His beauty. You see, seeing they will not see, hearing they will not hear, understanding they aren't going to get it. Why? Because you see, the Lord is not going to give the majesty of His, His Himself and all that he will do of all of his grace to natural man in a way that of the naturalness of who we are, we can make decisions for Christ and accept that or walk in that. He's not going to allow anything of this fallen flesh to be a part of, at least a part of, covenantially, of what he's doing. It will happen in our fallen flesh, but not by it. It will happen as our flesh, the work of God in me, the Spirit of God in me joins with the Spirit of me, my soul. And in this body, the work of God will be done. But it won't be done by the natural man. It will be done by us in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. He's not going to let the flesh deal in these areas. He's going to keep it from people. So you've wondered, I'm sure how many of us have wondered, I have shared the gospel, I have taught them, I have been as clear as I can be, and still they look at me like I'm crazy. What's wrong? What's happening? Well, I just need to bear down and get it more. No, I need to pray more. Well, you know, maybe so, but usually not. Maybe so, but usually not. <clears throat> What's happening, Donna? The Holy Spirit has not opened their eyes. You remember 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let there be light, has shown, how do you like that? I might, just had a blink out. Has shown into our hearts with the light of the knowledge of the gospel of Christ in the face of Jesus Christ. It's real close to that anyway. It just went off, it went off the screen just that fast. God says, let there be light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And as a result of that, I'm getting myself ahead of myself for the manure, but God opens eyes. What is our part to do? To pray, to be faithful, to discern to walk in wisdom, to hear from God, to do it His way, to do it in His timing, to do it through His means, to do it to whom, and let the Holy Spirit work. We should not become agitated. We should not become frustrated. We should not become impatient. 
because any of those things say, I am trying to get this man saved. And friends in Christ, we cannot get anyone saved. You need to just relax about this in the Holy Spirit and let him use you as a dependent, obedient, trusting servant. And you stand back, as Moses says, stand still, you know, in your spirit as far as agitation and so on. Stand still and what? Watch the salvation of God. Amen? And I think many of you have seen that. How many of you have seen you just kind of chit-chatting along and sharing some things and people get saved? You know, I went to see somebody the other night and we prayed for the particular person and we, I met with him, whatever, and it was in one of these rooms that had a little curtain between them. And, and the man next, next in the other bed heard me. I don't know how he heard, heard me. I wasn't speaking loudly. But he heard me. <clears throat> so I was coming out and he said, oh, can you pray, will you pray for me? I said, I didn't come see you. <laughs> James says, thank goodness he didn't come to my room. I said, sure. So I sat down on the side of the bed. He grabbed my hand. He says, you know, I have a thing in my throat, maybe cancer, whatever. <clears throat> so we started chit-chatting. And I said, uh, what do you want me to pray for? Well, that this in my throat is okay. I said, well, what's wrong with your throat? See, I didn't assume anything let him speak it out draw it out of him well I, I may have cancer now at that point many of us would say okay I'll pray stop wait what what are you worried about you see what are you worried about he says I'm worried that I may die I said why are you worried that you're going to die? What frightens you? You have to draw it out of him. Bring it out. Don't just say, yes, I'll pray for you. You know, if God does that, do it. Draw it out. So what are you afraid of? Dying. I said, why are you afraid of dying? He says, because I don't know what's going to happen to me. You see, God had prepared his heart, but you got to draw it out, Wendy. Draw it out. Get the confession out. So we shared for a little while, and, and he actually did. He prayed to receive Christ, an 84-year-old man. I think it was genuine. I hope it was. His name is Robert. You may be praying for him. I don't know any more than that. I gave him a card and then left. But what am, what am I getting at? Be ready. Be ready to be used by the Spirit at any moment. And be wise and discerning and trusting and patient. Even if we had not prayed, God is still in control and may send somebody else after me to walk in to pray or tomorrow. His salvation is God's work, not mine. The timing is God's timing, not mine. The method is God's method, not mine. I am just as all of you available hopefully obediently to the leading of the Holy Spirit why did the Lord keep the inner beauty of the sanctity and the divinity and the righteousness and the glory of the Son of God hidden to natural man <clears throat> because you see he only gives this vision to his own people only to those who dwell face to face with him 
in his heavenly holy of holies, which we will see one day upon the earth. And we'll talk about that in Revelation 21 and 22. Let's continue. Let's begin to talk about how is Christ manifested in the seven pieces of the furniture. You remember the furniture? This thing didn't work on the board this morning. What, is it working? Daniel, is it working? Oh, okay, keep going. Doc, one more. Well, there's the tabernacle. See how uh, it is? Anything? Can we get going anymore? Well, there it is. Okay, we have that much. And if it gets to the other, fine. What are the seven pieces of furniture? Remember, we enter into the outer court on what side? South, west, east, or north? Which side? No. No. Which side? East. East. <clears throat> east. Remember, east of Eden. East. Look up to the eastern sky, for your redemption draweth nigh. Don't look up north and south and west, but where to be looking for Jesus' return? East. So we're going to the east, we're going through the gate, and immediately before us is the great brazen altar where the sacrifices occur. Then we come to a very large bowl, which is called the lava of washings. Then we come to the building of the tabernacle itself, a smaller building, again, with an opening. Curtains are there. And as we enter that, and obviously we don't, but you understand what I'm saying, as that area is entered, there's a small room filled with smoke, and it's lit dimly. On the left-hand side is the menorah. On the right-hand side is the table of showbread, and immediately in front of me and in front of the next curtain is the altar of incense. And then as we go into the most holy place, the inner sanctuary, there are two pieces of furniture which we will show are considered to be one, but they're actually two. And it is the Ark of the Covenant and its lid called the Mercy Seat. <clears throat> All right, that's the furniture. Let's talk about how Christ is pictured in each of these pieces of furniture. <clears throat> First of all, the brazen altar, Exodus 27, 1 through 9, if you want to read the description of what the Lord says to do. What does the altar say about Christ? Now, you remember, we've already talked about this, but just to remind you, on this altar was shed, at this altar, what the blood was shed, and then the blood was put in the, a basin or a container, and then the carcass of the animal was put on top of the altar, tied down, and totally consumed with fire. Okay? Totally consumed with fire. What a picture of the sacrificial death of Jesus. What a picture of the total consuming fire of the wrath of God against the sacrificed, sacrificed animal. That's what's happening at the altar. All they know is that we're putting a bull on the altar and we're sacrificing it and we're burning it. You know, and there it is. That's what we know as Jews. But God is saying in this, this is the way I will redeem my people. The first work of redemption is the sacrifice. The first work is the sacrifice. And we'll go through the whole process until we get to the 
in a place. Why? Because each of these pieces of furniture take us further and further in. We are going somewhere. We are going into the very living uh, presence of God himself. That's where we go when we enter this area. How does, what does it say about Christ? This is the altar where the sacrificial animal was put to death for the sin of the people. As such, it foreshadowed the altar of the cross on which God's sacrificial lamb, remember? What is it? Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What, what is that from? Where? where, where what's the reference? John 1, 29. Please remember these. <clears throat> God puts this word in his word for us to know. It's a picture of Jesus dying on the altar of the cross. On this altar, the blood was shed so that God's wrath would pass over his people. You remember at the Passover, which we'll jump into just for a moment, that night when the angel of death passed through the land of Egypt, what did the Lord command the people? <clears throat> he says, every, all, every family get together, and every family you get a, a, a lamb, and if you don't have, uh, you don't have enough for yourself, you come together, and you know, if you can't afford your own lamb, get into a household that they can afford a lamb. Every household has a lamb. We sacrifice the lamb, and what do we do? The blood is poured in the basin. The basin is a carved out area at the threshold of the floor. It is a carved out area. It's a threshold. That's where the blood is poured from the lamb. Then they take what? That long, stringy looking thing called hyssop, and they put it into the blood that's in the lent uh, in, in the uh, basin there and they put it on the doorposts and on the top on the lentil and so the entire door is covered with blood it is a wall of blood and everyone on the inside of that wall is protected from personally enduring the punishment of god and everybody on the outside of the wall is subject to personal punishment by God as exemplified or typified in the death of the firstborn. And Jesus again, God is again showing the death of the firstborn that I commit, that I uh, accomplish in Egypt will be the first or the only born or the only begotten or the firstborn of the new generation, Jesus being our elder brother. He is the one who will pay the price at the cross. So you see, you have the blood that was shed. This is what's happening at the brazen altar. We see intimations of this in Genesis 3.21. You remember that? Remember Genesis 3.21? Remember what happened? Adam and Eve have what? Sin. Genesis 3.6, the last three words, and he ate. The next word in verse 7 is what? Adam and Eve are still alive, so the grace of God is already at work. They didn't die that moment, and God begins to look for them. You remember there was that conversation, where are you? What's happened? Well, and they started finger-pointing. Everybody started pointing somewhere else. And then finally, after God pronounces the curses, remember? The curse on the land, and remember the curse on the serpent, and Adam shall have this, and Eve shall what? Remember those things? Then we pass from the curses, and what does God do? In Genesis 3.21, he does what? He covers them. Am I, am I in the right place? Am I in the right place? Yeah. 
Doesn't he do that in Genesis 3.21? I have I missed it. I, I thought maybe for a moment I, I got my verses messed up. Doesn't he provide a covering for them in Genesis 3.21? And what happens? When a covering is provided, the skin of an animal, what does that mean? There's a shedding of blood. Immediately in the garden, God says, you are under my curse, the wrath of God. But I am going to provide, going to provide a way for you to escape the ultimate penalty. You're going to pay the temporary penalty of sin in this world of difficulty and problems and stresses and trials and thorns and thistles and a physical death. You're going to pay the temporary natural result of sin. You're going to pay that. But the eternal result of sin, which is the bigger problem in you shall surely die, is separation from God into a place of eternal torment and punishment. He says, I will shed the blood of an innocent in order to keep you away from that torment place and provide the way that you can come back and be with me forever. It begins in Genesis what? 3.21, and it travels all the way through the Bible until it's consummated in Christ. Remember, Colossians 2.17. It's all completed, fulfilled, or the substance belongs to Christ, as Paul says. You see, at this altar, the holy demands of God were fully met, oh, sorry, were fully met, but temporarily, fully in the sense that of a temporary nature, it was fully met, met to be a temporary picture. It was fully met as he dealt with man's sin through the death of the substitute for the forgiveness of sin. That's what was happening. Sin was put away for another year. It was put away for another year on the Day of Atonement. We'll get to that later. It was put away. And if you would, all this sin of all these people for all these years, of God's people, of God's people, not everybody in the whole world, but just of God's people. The, their sin and sins and whatever were collected and put, if you would, in a holding place all these years until one man now takes all of that which had been done, all of that which will be done, and God collects it and puts it all into this one substitute who dies collecting it all and paying the price for all of it. Why can he do this? You see, because he's the divine creator. Because he's the divine creator. And in that short span of time, mysteriously, the eternal and full weight of the wrath of God is exhausted on the body and soul of Jesus for our redemption. How can that be? What a mystery. And people say you can't believe the Bible. There's no way any person could ever contrive such a theology. It doesn't make sense. Do you think? Can anyone explain the details of this from us satisfactorily and answer all the questions? No. As a sacrificial animal had to be lifted onto the altar. Remember, it had to be lifted up onto the altar. So also Jesus was lifted up onto the cross for our sin. This is what he tells Nicodemus in John 3. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And when I and, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men or people to myself. I'm going to do it. I'm going to bring everybody to myself. The laver. I, I want to say too much about the laver, so I won't do that today. Again, I, I've slowed down here purposefully, so I want to be able to do a good enough job and hopefully sufficient enough within this short period of time to give us an understanding of what we have here. So do we first understand then the significance of the brazen altar? You don't go into the Holy of Holies without passing the altar of you know, death, the brazen altar and the laver. You have to go to those things. And by the way, those things, even though they are two pieces of furniture, they are connected spiritually. Spiritually, they are one. At the altar, the blood is shed, and I'll give you a hint, and at the laver, the result is applied. At the altar, the blood is shed, and at the laver, the the uh, result of the shedding of the blood is what? Applied. At the cross, Jesus is destroyed. In the resurrection, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. You see? Condemnation at the altar, and then the whole issue of washing away and baptism and cleansing in the laver, and we'll get to that next week. Thank you a lot.